millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This episode is about the entertainment industry's ableist exploitation of short-statured people in the early 20th century. When necessary in quoting historic newspapers, I've substituted the phrase the M-word for a highly offensive term. Other newspaper descriptions may offend. Listener discretion is advised. It's seven in the morning on Friday the 18th of March 1910 and Harry Houdini, world famous escapologist, magician and master media manipulator is in the air in his Vazen biplane over Digger's Rest northwest of Melbourne to claim the title of first person to make a powered and controlled flight in Australia. The Herald later today will run the headline, Flying, Triumph this morning, Houdini in the air, three successful trials, great speed claimed. Its article will begin, quote, The distinct honour of having been the first to conquer the air in this part of the world by flying a machine heavier than air was achieved this morning by Houdini. But 598 miles west in Adelaide, showman Frederick Hooper Jones is claiming that his pilot, Fred Custance, made a 5 minute and 25 second flight yesterday at Bolivar in a Blerio monoplane and then made a second flight that attained an altitude of 50 feet before a mistake saw him crash and crumple the plane's propeller and undercarriage. But Harry Houdini has the loudest voice, and he's soon repeating his flying feat for the still and movie cameras. What does Fred Jones have? A broken plane in a box? A plan to get his plane back into the sky? And the sort of character defects that'd make you doubt him if he said to you the sun was going to rise tomorrow? 
I'm Michael Adams, and this is the fourth and final instalment in the Forgotten Australia episode, The Mayor of Tiny Town versus Australia's Shiftiest Showman. After Fred Custance crashed Fred Jones's Blerio on his second flight on the 17th of March, the machine was taken to the premises of Duncan and Fraser for repairs. This company was founded in 1865 to build carriages. By 1900, they'd branched into motor cars. So they were well placed to fix the plane. In the meantime, on the 23rd of March, a columnist for Adelaide newspaper The Critic may have been the first to comment on the competing claims of Houdini and Fred Jones, writing, Houdini now claims to be the first man to fly in Australia. Papers say Houdini flew on March 18. If that's correct, then Mr. Custance beat him by one day. There'll be trouble about this. Never mind. Hooray for South Australia, anyway, and chance it. By early April 1910, reports said the monoplane repairs were coming along well. So well, in fact, that on the 9th of that month, in the Express and Telegraph, Fred Jones ran an ad. Wanted. Pupils learn fly, Blerio monoplane. Premium required. That he ran this notice day after day suggested he expected to be back in the air soon, and that he was even going to establish Australia's first flying school. On the 14th of April 1910, the Adelaide Advertiser inspected the restored flying machine at Duncan and Fraser's premises. Quote, The construction of a new propeller, which is an exact replica of the original one, was a delicate piece of workmanship. The blade had to be built up with six different pieces of timber, each of specially selected Singapore cedar, so fitted and glued that the grain of each piece ran in the opposite direction from that immediately next to it. The reporter watched Fred Jones climb into the cockpit and rev up the engine to attain 1200 RPM. The article went on. The next flight will probably take place at Kadina, as Mr Jones is now negotiating with a local syndicate for a display there at an early date. Mr Custance will again act as aviator. The columnist for the Critic newspaper on the 20th of April wished FC Custance good luck on his next flights and offered follow-up commentary on the competing claims. Quote, As I prophesied, Mr Houdini, the chain-breaker who flew in Victoria a day after Mr Custance flew in South Australia, is vigorously claiming to be the first to fly in Australia. Houdini is a showman. Mr Custance is not, which makes all the difference. This was true. But Fred Jones was a showman, just nowhere near as good as Houdini. Before Fred could send his Blerio back into the sky, he was brought down to earth in Adelaide local court. On Friday the 13th of May 1910, a man named William Jewell sued him for unpaid wages and expenses totalling £5.06. William Jewell had been Fred's advance agent back in 1907 when he was touring magician Charles Breton, that man who could unleash a grizzly bear to eat people and then put them back together again. Advanced man William Jewell's duties had included bill posting and organising shipping of the troops' luggage, including costumes, props and equipment. Fred Jones lost this case and he was ordered to pay William £2, 5 and 6. It was a pretty minor matter. But the Adelaide advertiser thought it was interesting for what it revealed about the life and work of an advanced man. In court, Supporting his case, William Jewell had produced a letter from Fred Jones in which he was ordered to, quote, square away all the railway station masters and porters on the way. This was because the troops' luggage was overweight. 
So Fred had gotten William to bribe all the Sweet Talk officials because he didn't want to pay extra shipping costs. Sounds fairly innocent, right? Something that any showman might do. Well, hold on to that thought. Now, also recall in part three, we heard that in January 1908, Fred's phonographic equipment and postcard store had gone up in flames. The cause of that blaze had been a mystery. All of Fred's stock was supposedly incinerated. He was only insured for £400, but his goods were valued at £700, or so he said. Just two months later, though, he was again selling phonograph needles and records and postcards. Had he restocked, or had he pulled an insurance scam? I said in part three, we wouldn't rush to judgment, but would instead stroll. Well, here we are. About 12.30pm on Thursday the 19th of May 1910, a fire swept through a livery stables in Gillies Arcade, Curry Street, Adelaide. All of the horses, some 20 of them, were saved. But the blaze destroyed a number of buggies belonging to Albert Manuel, the lessee of the arcade. Unfortunately, this man's property was not insured. His loss was said to be about £500. The source of the inferno? a huge wooden box whose owner had only days earlier stored it in a corner of the arcade. This, of course, was the same huge wooden box that had so fascinated Adelaide newspaper reporters back in February for what it contained. Fred Jones's Blerio 11 flying machine. The fire reduced the plane to ashes. The acting city coroner conducted an inquiry the following Tuesday. The Gillies Arcade lessee, Mr. Manuel, said he'd sublet part of the premises to Fred Jones. On the 10th of May, he and Fred had had a conversation about the risk of fire associated with storing the plane. Fred had assured him it was completely safe. But two days later, Fred had spoken to Albert about whether he had insurance. Albert said he'd let his lapse because he didn't think there was any fire risk to the Gillies Arcade. Fred on that day recommended that Albert take out a new policy with a commercial union company. But Albert didn't take this very prescient advice. Albert told the court that Fred had delivered the box first. Then the plane had been brought in on Monday the 16th of May. Albert said the machine was covered with a tarpaulin. It was put into the box the following day. After that, he didn't see it again. Albert Toombs said that on that day, the 17th of May, he saw Fred Jones packing straw into the case, but Fred didn't say why he was doing this. Ostler Harold Bidler, who worked at Gillies Arcade, said he'd seen Fred Jones around 11.50am on Thursday the 19th of May. Fred had asked to borrow an axe so he could open the case. Quote, he said he wanted to take out something belonging to the machine. Other witnesses testified to seeing Fred Jones and another unidentified man standing by the big wooden box about 10 minutes later, so 12 o'clock. They left and soon afterwards, smoke had started to come from inside the box. Storman Thomas Lenane told the court he'd noticed some odd oily substance on the floor and that it was on fire. He said this tar-like substance was in contact with and spreading outwards from the case and there were several patches of this oily goo on the side of the box. By the time he saw it, Thomas said the box was well alight and there was lots of smoke. Deputy Superintendent Dickey of the Metropolitan Fire Brigade said when he arrived, the fire was so ferocious it was impossible to say where exactly it had originated. 
Fred Jones told the court that his plane had not been stored with petrol and there was no straw packing. He said he'd opened the box at about 11.15 to remove an accumulator he'd unintentionally left inside. Fred didn't want this device to deteriorate over winter. Interestingly though, he didn't return the axe to Harold Bidler before he left. It was later found lying on the floor. In court, Fred did admit that on the 17th of May, he'd put a little packing around the engine of the plane to keep the damp from it. But before doing this, he said he'd gotten the permission of the manager of the insurance company. Fred told the court that when he last opened the box, everything had been quite secure, and neither he nor his companion had been smoking at the time. The coroner was unable to establish the origin of the fire. Fred said his plane had been valued at £750. Regrettably, it was only insured for £500, so he would be out of pocket. And as for the fire, Fred told the Daily Herald, quote, I cannot explain the affair at all. That was what he'd said two years earlier. Back then, he'd soon again been selling phonograph bibs and bobs. This time around, Fred sold the Blerio's Anzani engine, which apparently had been salvageable after the blaze. The buyer was his mechanic, Carl Whitbar. As the Adelaide News would report 20 years later, quote, The machine was brought to town and subsequently burned in a fire at Gillies Arcade. Mr. Whitbar purchased the engine. He reconditioned the engine and built a new frame with a propeller manufactured locally. I'm not sure about you, but to me, this was all highly suspect. At the time, though, no one seemed to recall the similarity between the two mystery fires involving Fred Jones in Adelaide. Or, if they did, they didn't print their suspicions, which might have attracted a libel action. In any case, Fred did seem to have a knack of doing all right out of disaster. Given he'd gotten £125 for showing the aeroplane in the Magic Cave, £500 insurance for its incineration, and an undisclosed amount for selling the surviving engine, Fred probably came close to breaking even on his £750 outlay. As for the second Blerio he'd supposedly paid for, I found no record of it arriving in Adelaide, if it was ever ordered in the first place. But maybe Fred was lucky to be out of the aviation game. On the 23rd of July 1910, Adelaide was finally to see its first Blerio flight, courtesy of English aviator HCL Laost Rolf at Cheltenham Park Racecourse. Two or three thousand people crowded around, but cleared enough space for the pilot to make several attempts at taxiing. The journalist for the register who was present was the same man who'd been at Bolivar to see Fred Custance and Carl Whitber tool around the paddock in Fred Jones's plane. On that day, he'd seen how the wind catching the wings caused the Blerio to suddenly swerve. And this one at Cheltenham Park Racecourse was doing the same thing. Quote, with a deafening cough, the machine sped along, and after travelling 120 yards or so, the front wheels lifted. Instantly, the machine careered to the right under the influence of the wind and darted on an altered course in the direction of some stragglers on the outskirts of the crowd. For most of them, to skip to a place of safety required no exceptional agility, but presently a boy was noticed in line with the machine, scampering with all his might to get out of its road. Ladies screamed and men yelled out warnings, but the machine, like a relentless eagle bent on its prey, swooped down upon him. Thrusting but his right hand in a vain attempt to protect himself, he disappeared under the right wing to the accompaniment of the crashing of wooden ribs and cries of dismay from the onlookers. 
The propeller had sliced off the boy's right hand at the wrist, and the kid was rushed to hospital to undergo an emergency amputation farther up the arm. The boy survived, but Adelaide didn't get to see a Blériot flight that day either. By January 1911, Fred Jones was back in showbiz, touring the world's electric entertainers around South Australia. The program boasted live entertainment, jugglers, comedians, singers, female impersonators. But the big attraction? The movies. Back then, motion pictures were dubbed the flickers, because that's what they did. Arc lamps used in projectors put out unpredictable amounts of light, so the image on screen flickered. And we still use the term flicks today. But Fred was using the latest technology, hence his company's title, World's Electric Entertainers, as the Laura Standard newspaper reported on the 27th of January. All pictures, which will be quite new, are screened by electric light. This very elaborate plant is worth inspection alone. And here's the Yorktown Pioneer on the 18th of February. Quote, The electric light plant is the largest and most up-to-date touring, comprising apart from complete plant, storage batteries. A huge searchlight is thrown in all directions about 8pm and can be seen for many miles around. Brilliant electric light is used throughout the entertainment. The show reached Loxton in the last week of March 1911. The Renmark Pioneer reported, On race evening, a variety entertainment was given by the world's electric entertainers in the Loxton Institute Hall. The hall was packed to overflowing and people had to be turned away. Nearly 50 pounds was taken at the doors. The moving pictures shown were good and there was an absence of the flicker generally so noticeable in similar shows. On Wednesday the 29th of March, the world's electric entertainers were bound for Renmark. And that meant the electric plant had to be loaded aboard the steamship Ruby from the Loxton bank of the Murray River. Under the personal supervision of the ship's captain, McLean, the wagon containing the precious equipment was being transferred to the ship via heavy planks serving as a ramp. But halfway onto the Ruby, a plank snapped and the wagon fell into the river on top of a Swedish deckhand named Oscar Blad. Oscar Blad was pinned under the wagon in four feet of water. 20 men scrambled with ropes to try to haul the wagon off of him, but it was too heavy. They couldn't budge it. After 45 minutes, a team of six draft horses in conjunction with a dozen men succeeded in raising the wagon enough so that Oscar Blad's lifeless body could be brought to the surface. It was hours after that before the wagon could be hauled out onto the bank. The Adelaide Chronicle reported, quote, the coroner was furnished with a report of the disaster, but he deemed an inquiry unnecessary, his reasons being that the deceased met his death by a plank breaking accidentally, no blame being attachable to anyone. Yet, here's the Renmark pioneer on the tragedy. Quote, Captain McLean added that he was unable to account for the accident, except on the assumption that the wagon was much heavier than they had been informed was the case as the plank had been in use all season in the unloading of motor winnowers and other heavy implements. The weight of the wagon had been stated as two tons. The Chronicle newspaper would report it had actually weighed three and a half tons. Did anyone connect this with the unpaid monies case Fred Jones had lost the previous year? the one where it had been revealed to the interest of the Adelaide advertiser that Fred Jones had been in the habit of ordering his minions to square away officials to overlook, 
overweight shipping. It doesn't seem so. Oscar Blad's death was written off as simply an accident with no one to blame. For Fred, the show had to go on. Press reports, likely cribbed from his press releases, said he was doing very well despite the loss of his precious electrical plant. Incidentally, by now Fred was already rewriting history, claiming he, quote, holds the record for the first aeroplane flight in Australia. Fred Custance had been conveniently forgotten. In May 1911, Fred Jones had new electrical equipment and was sued for not paying the full amount he owed for it. Fred's new company, World's Picture Entertainers, toured around South Australia for the next 18 months. Then, in April 1913, he wanted to take the company public, offering 20,000 shares at 5 shillings each to raise a total of £5,000. Anyone doubting the value only had to, well, read the blurb in the Narra Court Herald, which was written by Fred. Quote, Quality is the company's motto, and their difficulty is to find halls large enough to accommodate their patrons. You can have some of the profits we are making. We will accept a limited number of applications only for shares. See prospectus in this paper for full particulars. The prospectus, which included a clip-out order form so you could nominate the number of shares you wanted and enclose your cheque or cash, included this, quote, There is big money in this business, and the success of a properly organised concern is assured. The picture business has come to stay and is growing daily more popular. All of that was undeniably true, but it appeared few people were willing to part with their money to float Fred's film fantasies. By October 1913, the Court Herald reported that Fred had sold his motion picture equipment and various concessions in the southeast to another operator. How Fred Jones encountered Hayati Hasid at this time isn't known for sure, but it seems likely to have been in Court in late December 1913, when Hayati was doing his solo show there under canvas. Of course, Fred had been in South Australia when Tiny Town had debuted in October 1911. He knew how much money there was to be made. By early 1914, Hayati Hasid, known far and wide as the mayor of Tiny Town, was under Fred's newly formed The Tom Thumb Company. As we heard in part two, they toured country South Australia and Victoria, usually playing one show only in any town they touched. Fred Jones's publicity offerings were far cruder than those of Beaumont Smith when he'd made Tiny Town a must-see attraction all over Australia. Where Beaumont Smith had protected his star from the motion picture cameras, Fred Jones made a film of Hayati and had the little man narrate the movie in a week-long engagement in July 1914 in Adelaide, right as the Great War broke out. Soon after that, Hayati gave interviews in which he said it had been madness for the Ottoman Empire to enter the conflict and that he wanted only for England and her allies to vanquish Germany and the Kaiser. Even though he was known as the Turkish Tom Thumb, the Australian military authorities had not troubled themselves with Hayati Hasid in the months after Turkey entered the war on the German side. Then, on the 21st of January 1915, evidently fearing his star attraction was going to leave him, Fred Jones wrote to Australian military intelligence to denounce Hayati as a Turk who was about to leave the country by boat with a small fortune in cash. That same day, Fred appeared to have come into Victoria Barracks so he could give a formal statement. It appears in Hayati Hasid's military intelligence file, and it's handwritten on Australian Intelligence Corps memo paper. 
It reads, Dear Sir, A M-word, yet clever little man, is completing a contract with me. He is Hayati Hasid, known as the Turkish Tom Thumb. Fred Jones prattled on about how much money he'd paid Hayati and Hayati's banking details. He said he was a Turk and was planning to leave the country with his cash. Fred said he believed it was his duty to report all of this, but quote, I don't wish to do anything wrong or for my name to be mentioned. Fred's motivation seemed to be to ensure that Hayati was under control so he'd go on the 102-day tour they'd planned from Monday the 25th of January. On the 23rd of January, Hayati Hasid was taken into custody and brought into Victoria Barracks. Fred Jones tagged along, this Judas seemingly playing the role of Hayati's guardian and protector. Hayati was questioned, with his particulars set down on a prisoner of war form. Surname, Hasid. Christian name, Hayati. In the margin, though, it was noted he was the European Tom Thumb. Hayati had never been referred to in this way in the newspapers. It seems likely he insisted on this description, trying to distance himself from the moniker of the Turkish Tom Thumb. The form continued. Age, 58 years. Height, 30 inches. Weight, 2.5 stone. Place of birth, Salonika. In parentheses, though, it was added he was Turkish. Where a spouse or children might have been named, Fred Jones was instead listed, complete with his Adelaide postal address. This prisoner of war form noted Hayati had been in Australia for three years. Question 10 was, why not naturalised? Hayati had answered, carelessness. His occupation, showman. Did he send money out of the country? Yes. Okay, to who? The German Kaiser? The Turkish Sultan? No to his sister-in-law, Miss Elise Hasid, who lived at West 116th Street in New York City. The military intelligence officer, Captain Jones, no relation to Fred, reported to the Secretary of the Defense Department, quote, Hasid states that no large sums of money would be sent by him during the war, but that he was desirous of continuing the remittance of about £5 per month. Hayati was made to fill out and sign a loyalty oath. Quote, I, Hayati Hasid, European Tom Thumb, a Turkish subject, hereby promise and undertake that I will neither directly nor indirectly take any action in any way prejudicial to the safety of the British Empire during the present war. As for signing himself a Turkish subject, Hayati was later to claim he'd been intimidated into doing this by Fred Jones, who told him he'd better admit this to the military authorities or there might be more trouble. Though considered a Turkish subject and therefore an enemy, Hayati was not detained nor interned. Instead, he was subject to parole under the provisions of the alien instructions that were set out in the War Precautions Act of 1914. His form read, quote, Hayati Hasid, the European Tom Thumb, is released from military custody on condition that he reports himself weekly to the police station nearest to his place of residence and does not leave the state without the permission in writing of the chief police officer of the district or of the military authorities. This was signed by Captain Jones. Hayati was free to go, but all of this had to be rather frightening. He had no family in Australia. All of his former tiny town colleagues had scattered to the wind, with most of them returning to Europe. 
Hayati was thus reliant on Fred Jones for support and for employment. Did he realise how badly he'd been betrayed? At this point, it didn't seem so. The tour began with the Tom Thumb Company playing Eastern Victoria for months from the 25th of January. Hayati was being paid about £6.5 a week, and out of this, he had to pay for his own food and accommodation. While Fred Jones wasn't making the same vast profits Beaumont Smith had with Tiny Town, he was banking the bulk of the proceeds from his little man performer. Extraordinarily, Fred still hadn't given up on trying to stitch up Hayati. Now, he intimated that he was a spy. On the 26th of March, Fred Jones again wrote to the Commandant at Victoria Barracks. This missive was on the company's letterhead, Tom Thumb and Co, featuring specialties and little people, direct from Tiny Town. And when the letter reached military intelligence, it had been stamped secret, making it the strangest document I've yet seen in the National Archives of Australia. This letter read, quote, Dear Sir, Hayati Hasid, Turkish subject, on parole, is with me fulfilling his contract. He gets full particulars of all towns visited and has a big heap of particulars of each town. He usually does this through outsiders and cautious not to do so through me. So Hayati Hasid was doing reconnaissance style work on towns in eastern Victoria. Except, of course he wasn't. In a previous New Zealand newspaper interview with Hayati in 1912, he'd said he was very curious about the places he visited and liked to learn as much as he could about them. Fred Jones would have known this, but he tried to use Hayati's curiosity against him. His denunciation continued, quote, Since his parole, he is not banking any money, either secretly hiding same or sending away to his people in America. America was in quotation marks. Fred went on to name a Warrigal picture show man and another Adelaide man he claimed were in cahoots with Hayati. Fred intimated these two were helping the Turkish agent mask his sinister activities. Fred continued, I will be going with him shortly to New South Wales and would like your permission. It would be advisable to try and block him sending money out of the state. He is very cunning and gets others in my absence to do things with him. Could you make reference to money? and this was underlined, money, in your letter to me. I don't think his earnings should be allowed to go away. Please reply to catch me. Fred helpfully provided his next tour stops and dates. Lang Lang on the 29th, Kui Rup on the 30th, Cranbourne on the 31st. With this emphasis on money, Fred seemingly wanted to be able to show Hayati some sort of official military correspondence mentioning money that he could use to frighten him. But in an undated memo, likely from around June, after the tour, a Melbourne detective had called to see Hayati at the East Melbourne residence. When he questioned Hayati, Hayati told him what he'd told interrogators back in January. That was, he'd been sending about £4 a month to his sister-in-law by draft to England, where it was there transferred to New York. The only exception to this had been when he'd sent an additional £6.6 to the Jewish Society in New York. This detective, Detective Howard, reported, quote, His sister-in-law is a widow, and he has been sending this money since the outbreak of the war with the knowledge of the military authorities. Did Hayati have any idea what Fred Jones had been up to? It seems by now he'd twigged. Fred wanted a new contract with Hayati so he could tour him to New Zealand. 
Hayati wasn't having a bar of it. Especially because he charged Fred with stiffing him on wages to the tune of £46.8 and 4. On the 22nd of June 1915, Hayati took Fred Jones to the District Court in Melbourne to sue for these monies. As we've heard, this wasn't the first time Fred had faced such claims. Previously, he'd lost, but those cases had been fought against full-sized Australian citizens. Now, the showman was pitted against a short-statured Turkish alien. Fred's lawyer immediately seized on this, raising the objection that, as Hayati Hasid was a Turkish subject on parole, he was an enemy alien and had no standing in the court, and thus he couldn't sue anyone for anything. Hayati's lawyer, Mark Lazarus, said his client was not Turkish. Mr Lazarus said Hayati had only said as much during interrogation under duress. As the Ballarat Evening Echo reported, quote, Complainant was called to give evidence as to his nationality. He carried a miniature walking stick and was completely lost to sight when he stepped into the witness box. Mr Goldsmith, PM, by straining forward from his seat on the bench, could just see the top of Hasid's hat as he prepared to take the Jewish oath. This magistrate directed Hayati to stand on a chair in the witness box. Hayati swore his mother and father had been born in Salonika. His grandfather was a Spanish Jew, and he was too. Yes, Hayati said, Salonika had been under Turkish rule, but it had been under the Greek government since the last Balkan War. Hayati said he'd only been called the Turkish Tom Thumb by various promoters. Despite this, the magistrate decided that Hayati Hasid was a Turk. Now, this was a serious matter, and he'd have to adjourn the case for a few days. This was so the magistrate could give consideration to whether an enemy subject had the right to sue under a contract made since the war began. The magistrate believed his decision might have a bearing on hundreds of other similar cases that were bound to come up. The question of whether Hayati was an enemy alien ensured this unpaid wages claim made news Australia-wide. The Age in Melbourne went with the headline, Rights of Enemy Subjects, Can They Sue to Recover Money? A Dwarf's Claim. The Register in Adelaide went with Lord Mayor of Tinytown, Question of Nationality. Evoke a Free Press and Miners Journal, Tinytown's Mayor, Turk or Spanish Jew, Right to Sue Questioned. Despite the frustrations of these court proceedings, Hayati kept his head high. The Daily Telegraph in Launceston said after the adjournment, quote, The Lord Mayor thereupon donned his topcoat, gathered up his silver-mounted walking stick, hat and gloves, and left the courtroom with his dignity not in the least ruffled by the ordeal through which he had passed. On the very same day they faced off in court, the 22nd of June, Fred Jones wrote to military intelligence, saying, I wish to go to New Zealand with Tom Thumb Hayati Hasid. Kindly give me permission. But Hayati had a move to make. The next day, the 23rd of June, before court resumed, he went to the Greek consul in Melbourne. Hayati explained his situation, and this diplomat was only too happy to help. The consul drew up a document, and he signed it personally. It read, The bearer of this, Mr Hayati Hasid, commonly known as Tom Thumb, was born in Salonika of Hebrew parents. Salonika being now an integral part of Greece, Mr Hayati Hasid is consequently a Greek subject and entitled to my protection and to the privileges which accrue to a subject of a neutral country. Hayati took this document to Victoria Barracks and showed it to Captain Jones. Hayati was, Captain Jones reported, quote, 
released from any of the provisions of the Aliens Instructions 1915. And that parole document from back in January? Captain Jones scrawled across it in big letters, cancelled. Hayati no longer had to report his whereabouts and his movements. The whole thing had been entirely absurd and due to the malfeasance of Fred Jones. Captain Jones lost no time in replying to Fred Jones to say Hayati Hasid didn't need to ask permission to go anywhere, including out of the country. If Hayati should so choose, he was free of his bastard boss. Except, of course, for their ongoing court battle. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you done all of your Christmas shopping yet? There are only, insert number here, shopping days left till Christmas. To make things super easy for you, I've gone and written a new book called Hanging Ned Kelly, and it's a rip-roaring ride into the underbelly of colonial Australia, with a cast of characters you have to read to believe. From Ned's hangman, Elijah Upjohn, and his monstrous predecessor, Michael Gately, to a bevy of serial killers and absolutely crazed doctors and phrenologists, these shady sorts were too gruesome for the history books we studied in school. Hanging Ned Kelly is published by Affirm Press, an independent Australian company, so you'll be buying local. It's a beautiful hardback with plenty of illustrations, and it's available wherever books are sold. Dimmix, Booktopia, Big W, and of course your local independent bookstores. Okay, on with the show. When they returned to court, Hayati's lawyer, Mr. Lazarus, presented the consul's letter and Captain Jones's memo releasing Hayati from control and parole. He told the court his client was, quote, not a terrible Turk. The magistrate inspected the papers and said, quote, that settles the question of nationality, even though I held the other day that Hasid, on his own showing, was a Turk. Nationality established, the merits of the case could now be considered. Hayati claimed he hadn't been paid his wages regularly. Fred said no money was owing. Fred claimed that he held receipts for payment up until the 27th of March. After that, Hayati had refused to give him receipts, so he'd taken the precaution of having witnesses present when he'd paid the wages. A couple of these witnesses were called to back up Fred's claim. Given how Fred had used his advance man to lie previously, the integrity of these witnesses might be open to question. But Hayati did say that Fred had tried to pay him with silver coins on Sunday nights. Hayati did not want his money that way. He wanted notes on Monday so he could take them directly to the bank and keep the money safe. The magistrate dismissed Hayati's claim and ordered him to pay £2, 2 shillings in costs. Given Fred Jones's track record, it's reasonable to say this was not justice served. But at least the case had resulted in Hayati being vindicated in terms of his nationality. It was now on record. A Ballarat Courier headline on the 26th of June read, Mayor of Tiny Town, not an enemy subject. This was important given how bitter the war had become. Australia now reeling from the losses at Gallipoli. The Great War was far from over. 
So too, the war between Fred Jones and Hayati Hasid. Fred Jones fired the next shot. He knew Hayati had money in the bank, and he wanted it. Not just for the money, but because if he could financially ruin Hayati, then the little man might have no choice but to accept a contract to tour New Zealand. So, on the 9th and 10th of July 1915, Fred Jones took Hayati Hasid to Ballarat County Court for alleged breach of contract seeking £100 in damages and for slander, for which he wanted another £49. The slander matter arose from a performance on the 5th of May at Snake Valley before an audience of 150 people. Hayati had complained to a police constable in the audience that Fred Jones was selling his, Hayati's, postcards when he had no right to do so. The cop said it wasn't his concern. So, from the stage, Hayati told the audience his manager had stolen his cards and that he'd gotten no satisfaction from Mr. Policeman. Fired up, Hayati went on, telling the crowd, quote, My manager pays me no salary. He starves me, gives me nothing to eat, and choked me twice. Fred Jones lowered the curtain on him. In court, Hayati's lawyer cross-examined Fred. Mr. Lazarus, isn't it a fact that you keep him in captivity? Fred replied, no. Mr. Lazarus, you used to hide him from the people to lock him up in a room. Fred, certainly I did not lock him in a room. Mr. Lazarus, you let him walk about the streets? Fred, no. The man could not get £6.10 a week if he walked the streets. Yet Beaumont Smith had, as far as the record allows, placed no such restrictions on his tiny town troop. Mr. Lazarus continued, Did you declare to the military authorities that he was a Turk? Fred replied, No. The military people asked me to see that he report himself. This, as we've heard, was straight-out perjury. Hayati's military intelligence file begins with Fred's first letter of denunciation. But with these letters and all subsequent military correspondence classified secret, he was in no danger of having his lies exposed by the army. Fred also denied Hayati had the sole right to sell postcards bearing his image. In confused testimony, Hayati said he couldn't remember exactly when Fred had choked him. It had been about six months ago, he thought, once in Colac and once in Adelaide. Mr. Lazarus submitted to the court there was no slander case to answer because the matter had been treated as a joke by the Snake Valley audience. No reputational damage had been done. But his honour disagreed. Mr. Lazarus got Hayati to testify in his own defence, saying, Come on, Tom, get on the table. Hayati stepped up and, under oath, said the postcards were his. He'd said to the constable, Is it the law Mr. Jones should sell my postcards? Hayati said the cop had laughed and said he didn't understand. Hayati had then asked Fred what he was doing selling his property. Fred had snapped at him, Mind your own business. Then, from the stage, Hayati testified he'd said, Ladies and gentlemen, is the law Mr. Jones sell my postcards? Mr. Jones owes me money. He never give me food to eat all day inside the hall. Mr. Jones, he choked me twice. Fred's lawyer, the improbably named Mr. Troop, cross-examined Hayati, and the limitations of Hayati's English were quite clear. Mr. Troop, according to your agreement, you have to provide your hotel expenses and food. Who is to pay for your food? Hayati responded, from my salary. You were paid your salary? Yes. And had to feed yourself? Yes. Then what do you mean by saying Mr. Jones would give you nothing to eat? Hayati replied, Take me slow, please. 
Mr. Troop, did you have anything to eat at Snake Valley? Hayati, take me slow. I can't understand. Do you know what it is to eat? E-A-T. Yes. Did you have anything to eat at Snake Valley? Hayati, I can't remember. Plenty time I've been in the hall. Nobody been inside the hall. Locked the door and left by myself. Mr. Lazarus told the court that Fred Jones had kept Hayati on after this alleged slander on the 5th of May. In fact, they'd continued to perform until mid-June. And now he wanted to make a new contract with Hayati. Why would he do that if he'd been so vilely slandered? Mr. Lazarus said this case was just to give him leverage over Hayati Hasid. Fred Jones, Mr. Lazarus said, was, quote, exploiting him using the word in its capitalistic labour sense. He did not say that Tom was not quite satisfied with his pay, which was £1.18 per performance, but it was obvious that Jones was proportionally doing better. Now, to secure a win, Mr Lazarus patronised and denigrated his client, quote, To claim that the mutterings of this little mannequin on the stage were actionable was contrary to common sense. It was improbable that anyone in the audience had paid any attention to them. But Fred's lawyer countered, quote, He says he can speak eight languages, Mr. Lazarus, but we don't know how well he can speak them. His Honour, having heard the arguments, made his ruling, which were paraphrased in the Ballarat Courier this way, quote, One felt a certain amount of sympathy for a poor little chap like the defendant, especially after having heard him. He did not appear to be a highly intelligent being, and one could imagine him making a great deal out of very little. But even miserable little specimens of humanity could do a lot of damage with their tongues. Defendant was, he supposed, sufficiently intelligent to be amenable to the law. There was no doubt, thinking he was suffering an injustice, he used the words complained of, and witnesses for the plaintiff stated that in describing the choking he spoke of, he put his hands to his throat. Taking the context, therefore, the statement would indicate a serious assault. He did not think, however, that any great damage had been sustained by the plaintiff. So, the judge was ruling in favour of Fred Jones, but he only ordered Hayati to pay one pound plus costs. After this Pyrrhic victory, the breach of contract matter was heard. Fred claimed that Hayati hadn't worn his costume as specified in the contract during some of the 102 performances. Fred said that back on the 11th of April, Hayati had complained that the basket containing his costumes had been lost. It had been widely reported that Hayati travelled with many outfits and that they were worth a lot of money. When the basket wasn't located, Fred told Hayati he had to foot the bill for replacement costumes. Hayati refused to pay. Fred's claim for damages was that his box office had fallen off after his star had begun to perform in civvies. The magistrate said he doubted very much that Fred had lost very much money, if any, because, costume or not, they usually only played one night in each town, so people wouldn't have spread the word that Tom Thumb wasn't appearing in his finery. But the magistrate did accept that Hayati had on occasion refused to appear at all, and that this had resulted in a financial loss for Fred. His Honour said Hayati was clearly an obstinate and pig-headed person. Even so, he wasn't going to award Fred Jones anything like £100. Instead, the magistrate ordered Hayati to pay £5 in costs. So, Hayati Hasid had lost three times in court to Fred Jones. 
it had cost him perhaps upwards of £12 in damages and costs. Plus, his unpaid wages claim had been tossed out. This doesn't seem fair at all. But at least Hayati was at last free, with the bulk of his monies still intact. And Fred Jones? Well, he had no act to tour. After the court case, Hayati vanished from view, and it's hard to blame him. In November 1915, a Captain Hurry of the military HQ inquired with Detective Howard of Melbourne CIB about Hayati's whereabouts. The detective reported, quote, He is performing in a travelling troupe from state to state as Tom Thumb, and when last seen by me, he said he was going to America. In the memos that relayed this information up the chain of command, there was reference to a letter from the American consul being attached. Unfortunately, that hasn't survived in Hayati Hasid's file. Neither have I found any newspaper reference to Hayati performing again in Australia as Tom Thumb. But American immigration records record him arriving in San Francisco on the 17th of April 1916. Where he went from there is not known. But Hayati Hasid next entered the United States in New York on the 5th of May 1918. In an echo of his treatment nearly a decade earlier, he was detained at Ellis Island until the 22nd of May when he was allowed into the country. Hayati stayed with his sister-in-law in Manhattan. But he either wanted to work or had to work, and so he travelled to Cincinnati where he'd had success with Tiny Town back in 1910. That summer, he appeared in Chester Park as General Tom Thumb II. The Cincinnati Post reported on the 27th of June, 1918, quote, At the pit, Henry Hasid, the smallest man in the world, the Punch and Judy show, the Egyptian Wheel of Destiny, and other new features are attracting large audiences. Hayati told American crowds that he was 63 and had been performing for nearly half a century. He befriended a man named Charles C. Morris, who was the manager of amusement devices at a summer resort and stayed in this man's house in Winston Place in the city. Hayati's show was a success and he was engaged to return the following summer. With the season done, he wintered with his people in New York. Hayati did return to Cincinnati in the third week of April 1919 and he checked into the Princeton Hotel. But on Saturday, the 26th of April, he took ill and was taken to the General Hospital. There, he died of heart disease, his age given as 64 in the newspaper, though he was actually three years older than that. In keeping with his faith, Hayati was buried at the Judah Toro Cemetery at Price Hill. The Cincinnati Enquirer gave him a substantial and affectionate obituary on the 29th of April, quote, Hasid spoke seven languages fluently. He was well informed on world events and could discuss the problems of Greece or the latest Japanese dissension intelligently. He visited Japan and China and made a tour of South America. During his travels, he appeared before nearly all the crowned heads of Europe. For several years, Hasid was an actor at the London Hippodrome. When at Chester Park, Hasid made many friends. It's unclear from this whether the writer just didn't include everything he knew about Hayati Hasid's career, or whether Hayati had not mentioned his time in Australia. If he'd been reluctant to talk about it, you could kind of understand why, given his treatment by Fred Jones. 
As for Fred Jones, well, given his supposedly patriotic denunciations of Hayati, it was bitterly ironic he was next in the Australian news in 1916 for alleged wartime fraud on the north coast of New South Wales. Putting on a musical show, Fred had claimed that one song had been written by a wounded digger who was still over in France. Fred's lackeys, including on this occasion his daughter Marjorie, would then sell this song sheet for sixpence to the crowd claiming the proceeds were going to the injured digger. It was all hooey and a shameful scam, and Fred was charged and committed to stand trial. But the New South Wales Attorney General declined to continue the case. Fred's pilot at Bolivar, Fred Custance, meanwhile, set a motorcycle record in 1912 and then served with the Australian Flying Corps during the war. Though he was a sergeant mechanic, he also appeared to have undertaken some aerial photographic duties. Suffering from what his file called hysteria and neurasthenia, he was returned home with a medical discharge. Seemingly recovering from what today we might call PTSD, Fred went into the tractor business in South Australia, and he died in 1923 in tragic circumstances. Out motoring with a mate, they got bogged, and Fred Custance tried to walk out overnight to get help, dying of what was likely exposure at the age of just 33. But Frederick Hooper Jones kept on keeping on. In 1921, he was news in Sydney and all over Australia when he foiled the robbery of his fancy goods store in Wallara. In 1940, now aged 53 and living in St Kilda, he listed his occupation as agent and businessman when he enlisted in the Citizen Military Forces. He attained the rank of sergeant while serving at military headquarters in Melbourne. Yep, the same place he'd gone to denounce Hayati Hasid three decades earlier. On the 20th of November 1943, Fred Jones's photo appeared in the Argus. In his staff sergeant uniform and cap, bespectacled, he looked his 56 years. The headline? The man who flew the first monoplane in Australia. This feature detailed his visit to England in 1909 and his dealings with the pioneers of aviation before he returned to Adelaide to write himself into the history books. The Argus piece says, quote, Then the Blerio flew. Mr Jones went up early in the morning, took it to a height of between 12 and 15 feet and flew three times round the field. This took about 5 minutes 25 seconds. In this story, it was Fred Jones who was in the pilot seat when the Blerio went up for the second time and crashed. This was a fairly substantial article, and Fred Custance wasn't mentioned once. Given the article didn't directly quote Fred Jones, the blame might have been with the reporter, who'd cited various articles and, for whatever reason, omitted Fred Custance. Could we give Fred Jones the benefit of the doubt here? Fred Custance's widow wrote to the Argus a few weeks later to set the record straight. She described her late husband's role and quoted the interview we've heard with him about what it was like to fly. She said she had a scrapbook in which were pasted plenty of articles about what Fred Custance had done that day in March 1910. So the Argus went back to Fred Jones with this. Quote, When this matter was referred to Staff Sergeant Jones, he said that Mr Custance had helped to service the Blario after it arrived in Adelaide and had made several short flights in it. He had had the highest regard for Mr Custance and did not wish to deprive him of any credit due to him, but the fact remained that he, Staff Sergeant Jones, had bought, imported 
and flown the Blario. This was a shameful, disrespectful act. Then, in 1957, a year before his death, in a letter to his old mechanic, Carl Whitper, Fred Jones referred to the first 1910 flight, the one that had supposedly lasted 5 minutes and 25 seconds, as being, quote, mythical. What did he mean by mythical? Aviation experts cite this as Fred admitting it had been fictional, that he'd made it up and that Fred Custance had gone along with it. In a very spirited but very respectful comment section debate attached to a 2009 Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences article by Ian Debenham called First Powered Flight in Australia, Episode 4, Janet Custance vehemently disagreed with the conclusion that her grandfather was party to a fraud. She cited the lengthy interview that Fred Custance had given, his other record-setting achievements, and that he'd kept clippings of reports of this flight, something he wouldn't have done if it had been a hoax. That's fair enough. Fred Jones could have meant legendary rather than mythical. He was, after all, by this stage, about 78 years old. Further, Fred Jones didn't say that the second flight Fred Custance had made was mythical, so that may have happened. Yet, given it resulted in a crash, could it have been described as controlled? After all, the same argument had been used to rule out Colin de Friese's 1909 attempt. In the comments section discussion, sceptical aviation experts pointed to Fred's 1943 The Argus Lies as evidence of his unreliable character. I'm 100% in agreement with that. And if they ever hear this podcast, I think I've shown there was a lot more in his career to show he wasn't to be trusted. Fred Jones's lies may have led to Oscar Blad drowning under that wagon in the Murray River at Loxton. His lies may have covered up two cases of arson. His lies certainly made Hayati Hasid's life hell, and there's incontrovertible proof that Fred Jones committed perjury. But, as they say, a stop clock is still right twice a day. The first trials at Bolivar were witnessed by a reporter, and the Blerio did lift into the air that day. So it is entirely possible Fred Custance got up into the air, just as reported, one day before Harry Houdini. There's simply no way to prove it, though. Thanks to his deceptions, including how Australia's shiftiest showman treated the mayor of Tinytown, all we can do is wonder. Hayati Hasid appeared to have lived a long and decent life despite the huge obstacles he faced due to the mindset of the time. Frederick Hooper Jones, well, he was, shall we say, more complicated. But as a fitting final note, while these two characters are obscure today, there are living links to this story who we can hear on Australian airwaves any day of the week. Remember Fred's brother, the musical prodigy Hooper Brewster Jones? Well, his legacy really did lead to members of his family taking wing. Hooper had a long and successful career in South Australia as a musician, composer, teacher and critic. His achievements included being a founding member of the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra and its conductor. His son, Arthur Brewster Jones, was also a conductor and head celloist of the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra. Arthur's sons, John and Rick Brewster, are also musical. 
1970, they started the Moonshine Jargon String Band in Adelaide. The following year, the outfit was joined by an Irish-born singer and guitarist, Bernard Neeson. By 1974, they'd changed their band name to the Keystone Angels. Two years after that, with frontman Bernard, soon to be known Australia-wide as Doc Neeson, they began to soar up the charts as the Angels. Who rings the bell? Well, John and Rick still do, touring the Angels. And since 2012, they've been joined by John's son, Sam Brewster. I think the showmen in Hayati Hasid and in Fred Jones would approve. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. Thanks very much for coming with me on what turned out to be a far deeper dive than I anticipated again. Thanks also for your patience in the delay to this episode. As you might be able to hear in my voice, I've had a case of bronchitis, which put me out of action for a little while. I'll be back with another episode before the end of the year and with a new bonus episode. Thanks to everybody who's supporting and subscribing. Take care of yourselves. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.